0: A warm welcome to you all to this, the first edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast for 2019. My name's David Cushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, Editor of the Leaders Performance Institute, John Slightly uh, changed job title, but same old you. How are you? Not too bad at all, David.
1: It's great to be back and Happy New Year, if it's not too late to say so.
0: It almost certainly is, John. Uh, We've got uh, some housekeeping to do in terms of telling everybody about our next Leaders Performance Summit. Uh, We'll do that shortly. Tell us first what we've got on the podcast today.
1: Well today, David, is an interview with Aaron Williamson, Professor of Performance Science at the Royal College of Music. He invited me down to his office in South Kensington here in London
0: and that's where we recorded this chat. And what happened in that office, John? Well, he
1: talked about their center of performance science, and he talked at length about learning in the spotlight, as he put it, which is something they promote through their performance simulator. And he also told me that the world of classical music is witnessing a constant redefinition of what he said are the upper limits of human intellectual and motor capability. He then relates some of this to physical and psychological stresses. He also then explained why the greats of classical music are able to balance their personal conviction in their performance with audience expectations, which I'm sure will be interesting for people in the world of performance and sports.
0: Indeed, sounds like a terrific chat upcoming. Uh, John, before we hear it, let me tell everybody about our latest Leaders Performance Summit, the first one of 2019. And we're heading to Las Vegas. It's going to be a fun one. Uh, Saturday, the 2nd of March, it is at the UFC High Performance uh, Facility, uh, which I'm told is absolutely spectacular. Uh, Duncan French, the Vice President of Performance for UFC, William Parham, the uh, Director of Mental Health and Wellness at the National Basketball Players Association. Director of Sports Performance at the Las Vegas Golden Knights, Jay Mellett, will be with us, as will Brigadier General Robert Novotny from the 57th Wing Commander of the US Air Force. Uh, It sounds like a stellar lineup already. More big names to follow, and we'd love to see you there. Uh, Just check out the website, leadersinsport.com, for all the details. All right, John, shall we get cracking with your conversation with Aaron?
1: Yes, let's crack on.
2: I'm Aaron William and I'm Professor of Performance Science at the Royal College of Music uh, and I direct the Centre for Performance Science. Um, At the RCM we've been doing research in performance science for around 20 years and so the question is what role I think does science have in making great art and the answer to that question is that we have a lot of ways in which we intersect with the direct application of skills and expertise within music performance. But we also then try to carry out research where we advance the understanding of music, the understanding of human performance and where, those, uh, where the, the, the specific elements of the art can really be launched into the next level. We want to create performers that are intersecting very directly with the cutting edge of music and art. And I think a scientific perspective on that can say a lot in terms of how we advance and create the next generation of great musicians.
1: Well, I hope we can chat about some of that this afternoon, but what are some of the gains you've noticed, some of the developments, some of the evolutions you've seen over the past two decades then?
2: Well, you can characterize our work in a number of respects. I mean, in many respects, we have come into the scientific study of music and music performance by looking at where things have gone wrong. We see that across the profession, there is quite a high incidence of performance related injury. We also find that people have a lot of worries and anxieties about going out and putting their skills on display in front of um, what many people perceive as a critical public. And so we do a lot of work that tries to understand the state of those problems, but also how we can over help musicians to overcome those problems. But then on the other side, we also see that there are great opportunities for helping our students to thrive as musicians. We want them to be not just surviving music, we want them to thrive as great musicians. And so we can help to advance their knowledge of music and where they place their own knowledge within their performance, uh, how we can optimize those physical skills and mental skills to help them go into a performance situation and not just survive it but really to um, to enjoy it, to interact directly with their audiences and want to do it again and want to do it for very long careers.
1: So you have quite a holistic approach to it.
2: Yes, I mean we are increasingly seeing that what we have to do is treat the study of music performance from with regard to its wide-ranging physical psychological implications Um, of course when musicians are going out um, they have to play a lot of notes sometimes they have to play a lot of notes really quickly they have to remember all those notes because they're often playing from memory they have to engage with other people while they're doing that and to come to some sort of shared understanding of an artistic vision of what they want to produce. And they have to do it with an audience that may know the pieces that they're playing or or that may be completely new to those pieces but will certainly have expectations. So we, we have to take a holistic approach physically, mentally, socially um, to how we understand music, how we help to train musicians to redefine music. And if we were only taking uh, a one-dimensional approach to this, then we, we wouldn't be a very effective uh, research centre within a, an active, what I would say, world-leading conservatoire.
1: And what are some of the ways you measure development and improvement in your students then across those areas you've just described?
2: Well, we get our students to perform as much as possible. When they come to study with us, they come here to, to walk onto our concert hall, Platform to walk into our recital hall, our opera theater. We get them out onto the stage as much as possible, so we expose them to those performance opportunities early in their training, and we try to get them out into to performance opportunities nationwide, London wide, Europe wide, worldwide as soon as possible. So, in one instance, the the an integral part of effective music education and training means we need to get them to perform. But at the same time, we have to get them to practice their performing. We want them to be ready to go out and to be able to do things that, in the moment that are required for that moment. And of course, that's not always something that can be tested and trained in a practice room when they're learning by themselves, but they need to be actively engaged with other musicians in places that are vibrant and dynamic. So that objective is largely pushed along trying to get people to practice their performing, to learn in the spotlight. And the way in which we do scientific work on this is you know, we, we can use standardized measures of monitoring physiological states, looking at uh, the release of stress hormones through saliva samples. We might uh, turn on to our performers some um, uh, motion capture equipment, thermal imaging cameras, wireless wearable technologies. We also use uh, different sorts of surveys and questionnaires that reflect standardized psychological Uh, constructs that we we come to measure. In addition to that more um, sort of systematic uh, empirical type measurement, we also do quite a lot of qualitative work to look at what it feels like and and the phenomenology of walking out on stage. Um, When people are learning in a new way, what are the benefits that they are perceiving themselves? How can that then cross over into how they're motivated to learn that again so we ru- in the Center for performance science we really take the word science in its broadest possible construct to look at knowledge and we try to set up research questions and use the best methods that are available to answer those specific questions does, does that answer <laughs> uh, it certainly
1: does it, it seems Aaron that's your literally blending art and science here. People always talk about that in the world of sport, but you are blending art and science in the pursuit of improved elite performance.
2: Well, I, th- I think a lot of musicians, when they think of themselves, they think of themselves as artists. But really what they also are, are people who have been working in a systematic fashion for a very long period of time. It takes a lot of very direct and deliberate effort to set goals, to work systematically towards those goals. It's very much an empirical process that a lot of musicians go through, and a lot of my colleagues who are out performing, who are out teaching, um, they have questions that I would describe as empirically tractable. They have quite direct questions about how to be better, and what we are trying to do scientifically is to come up with the the best sort of design that can help test some of those those ideas out.
1: And who's involved in the questions that emerge from this process? Who gets involved in that conversation then?
2: Well, we do a lot of collaborations with active professional musicians within the college, outside the college. We work directly with our students here. We come together to create questions that and to generate questions that we feel not only will will advance our understanding of human performance from a scientific perspective, but also to advance how people are able to perform, how they approach the learning and the execution of that. Historically speaking, if you look at music, I mean, music is a great domain where we have seen a constant redefinition of the upper limits of human intellectual and motor ability. Uh, If you take, for instance, the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, when it was composed, it was considered unplayable. Very difficult physically to get your fingers around the violin and to do this piece in a way that might be convincing. And today, this is one of the standard pieces in the repertoire. Very, uh, very, it's even some young uh, um, musicians who have been uh, making great progress in their training will, will could play this piece in, in public. So we see a constant, tackling of challenges that at one point in history would have seen as been seen as really quite impossible to fulfill but then now they're just commonplace. So that's a very interesting situation to be in when it comes to trying to do, to run a Centre for Performance Science because we are constantly having to innovate, to be original and the way in which people come up with strategies to be original and to innovate is an interesting thing to study and that's very much at the core of what we're doing in the centre. So what is
1: it then, in the, I guess in the broadest terms, that makes that piece playable? Because Aaron, what you've just described reminds me of Sir Roger Bannister's four minute mile. When he first broke that four minute barrier, he was obviously the first person, but it fell a number of times in the years after that because it was suddenly doable, I
2: suppose. What, is, what does it play there? I think what we see is Possibility, and when people see possibilities, they are motivated to try and push further. And it's not, um, it's not just about having to put the time in. It's about knowing that something is possible, and having that door opened for you means that you know you can walk through the door and see how it comes. If we if we look again from a historical perspective, I mean some of the so-called great performers, some of the first rock stars of of let's say the classical music world in, in the 17th, 18th centuries, if you put them on the modern concert platform, they would probably not get jobs today because the, the, the sort of pace of uh, progress has been really steady. We see that there are pieces that are put out that are, con- that are perceived as unplayable. Once people start to do them regularly, they just become commonplace. Um, now, at the same time, as educators, we have a responsibility to make sure that we set up our students in ways that don't allow them to push to the extent to which they harm themselves. So we want to provide holistic training that gives them insight, and in not only in terms of pushing themselves physically, and mentally, but to do so in a way that's constructive and that's positive, that is paced properly. And we're, we're you know, within the Royal College of Music, we we see musicians starting from age eight all the way through to people who are uh, just long, about to launch themselves into pro- the professional career. So, you know, we, we see a wide range of young people. And I think as part of that, a lot of the work that we're doing is trying to make sure that they have the, the, the tools to tackle these challenges in, in a healthy, constructive way for very long careers. Within music as well, I think we, we see people who have indeed extremely long careers. I mean, they're musicians who are working out professionally for five decades. So unlike other very high level performance fields, we can still as musicians function ex- exceptionally well, even into older age. And in fact, uh, you know, some of the great concert soloists today are, are people who have been out there for a very long time and if they had been athletes or dancers or so on you might have seen their careers ended um, much, much earlier, but um, among musicians, yeah, there, there's certainly the possibility to work for very long periods of time but there there's also the possibility for people to be burned out and to, to, to take early exits as well. So as educators we want to make sure that we, we, we feel that we have a duty of care to Inform to educate to train and support our students in ways that set them up for this success over the long term.
1: And you mentioned there the risk of burnout. So it might be an interesting time to talk about performance stresses. Uh, what are some of the performance psychological and physiological stresses you've worked to identify and better understand? I mean, how can they impact upon a musician as well?
2: We see that when people are getting ready to perform, they report quite a lot of performance anxiety. So. This is event-specific anxiety around a, a a particular activity, and if you look across the profession, there's a there's quite a high proportion of people who who report severe and debilitating performance anxiety. So among current professional musicians, you may find fifteen percent who who not just report performance anxiety, but report debilitating anxiety. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that they may ruminate and worry about a performance for days, weeks in advance to the day of the performance and they're standing backstage and, and physiologically what we see at that point is um, a real shift in the, the, the physiological state. They're, they're, they're quite highly aroused and on edge in terms of the stress that they're experiencing. Now, some people will interpret that as a signal that something may go wrong, they may fear the the feeling, they may really not like it, they may dread it. Um, other people on the other hand may take a positive attitude towards this as a signal that they're ready to perform. And what we would say is that you know, the, the physiological change that happens before performance will uniformly be across you know most musicians. I mean we're, we're in different physical and psychological states when we go into that performance and that's why we want people to practice performing. Um, but the way that you interpret that psychologically is critical to the outcome. So we want we work with our students to make sure that um, they can f- have these feelings of phys- physiological change and to interpret those in a in a way that signals that that they're in a special event that they're ready to go out and take the stage and to do what they've been training to do. Interestingly, when we monitor that physiological trajectory across a particular performance, we see the pre-performance time there's very high levels of physiological arousal by the time our our musicians get out onto stage and they start doing what they've been trained to do we see a slight recovery from that a settling down of the physiological arousal and a delivery of what they can do in terms of expressing their skills and playing the music. And then, of course, we also want to look at how people recover from stress so that they can recover quickly and get back to normal soon so that they move on to the next stressful event, i.e. a performance, in the most positive possible way. So um, there's no individual path in terms of how performance stress and anxiety can affect a musician. I mean, there, there are individual pathways as to how people are affected and how they interpret those effects. Um, we do offer a range of support systems available to help try to optimize their interpretation of those signals and also to optimize how they can practice performing so that they know what it's like, They, they have that experience and then they can learn from that experience rather than just to see it as a final product. So it's
1: important for them to be able to see it with their own eyes?
2: Yes, and to experience, you know, the state, I mean, if, if, if you haven't put yourself on the line and suddenly you, you do and you feel yourself physically quite different, but you've got to do something physical out in front of other people and it's affecting the way your your attentional focus is happening and your, your memory skills and so on. Well, you need to know how the extent to which that effect is going to be there and then say, well, you know, I can manage this myself or maybe I need some support. And when people need support, then they work with us to, to overcome those problems.
1: So Aaron, in terms of progression from novice to exceptional talent, it's not quite as simple as committing 10,000 hours to your instrument, even if that number is probably low in most cases, if not if not all. You've spoken in the past when discussing your research of interpersonal and and environmental catalysts and their impact upon progression and learning in musicians. Uh, What are some of these catalysts that you'll most commonly find in relation to music students? then?
2: Well, there's no question that to become a great musician, you do have to put in a lot of time. And as it happens, a lot of musicians, when they start this, they're quite young, they accumulate this practice over time. Um, But in addition to good quality practice, we also know that there are ways in which people can be influenced on their trajectory towards expertise. That might come in terms of the sort of interpersonal catalyst that we see with regard to um, how motivated they are to practice and whether that motivation is coming from the outside or from within. Uh, There might be interpersonal catalyst related to aspects of body size, do they have large hands and is that suitable for playing the piano or maybe un, unsuitable for other instruments and how do they map into their, their instruments, um, whether they have um, volitional control and in fact an internal locus of control over managing tasks and their attitudes towards learning and, uh, and tackling challenges. So in addition to all of these personal qualities that we see though, people are not making music in isolation, they're doing it with other people and they're observing uh, their peers, they're getting teaching, they have inspiration perhaps from their parents and, and others. So the environmental catalysts come into play here that can shape how um, how they progress, the extent to which they want to do that deliberate training, and also the extent to which they see Uh, possibilities in their skills. So um, the extent even to which they have the resources available and the opportunity socially to take part in training programs, to be able to buy what might be expensive instruments, you know, there are a range of um, factors that come to play that will influence how you move on that path from becoming a novice all the way through to becoming an expert musician. And those catalysts might affect you in both positive or negative ways. And you know this is just the, the real life of it. And of course, there's also, um, for a lot of musicians, in fact, for, for any sort of performer, there's just a great deal of chance that can affect how they move on that road to greatness. So uh, just getting a lucky break, being able to happen to take part in a summer program or a training program where you see some other great who are accelerating in certain aspects of their performance and being able to spot that and respond to it. So, we do recognise that there has to be this sort of holistic view of the musician. And of course, you know, it, it's, it's a music educator's job to make sure that when, when our students are learning to perform, that they have the sort of skills to learn effectively, that they're taught how to practice. They're taught the the, the sort of technical skills to do what they need to do on their instruments. Uh, they're taught uh, aspects about how to express music in a way that is that corresponds to what they want to achieve in terms of their overall goals. But we also, as musicians, know that we have to give people those knowledge about you know, career opportunities and sk- and career skills and 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 working as a portfolio self-employed person, uh, and being able to network and to make opportunities for themselves, and also crucially as part of that, the make sure that they have a clear view of the importance of the life skills that support themselves as well. Being a musician is, it it's something where there are lots of rewards and opportunities. And what we actually find is that musicians take a lot of meaning and value out of what they do. And that's in spite of the occupational challenges that they face of relatively limited employment and quite difficult financial circumstances and just an overall tough occupational environment. But I think musicians are driven by the art that they make and that really propels them and, and makes them want to make more of it. And it is a very rewarding career when you do it. Of
1: course. So you, when you um, induct students, you have to be aware of how they may have already been catalyzed, if we, if we put it that way, and mm-hmm. help them to the next phase.
2: Absolutely. We, so we want to, when we, when we take in students of the Royal College of Music, I mean, very typically, even if they're 18, 19 years old as first-year students, they will already have been playing maybe even for 15 years. 16 years by that point. So it's not as though we're, we're taking people who have no skill and then building everything up and they will have a, a huge, a long history of many influences that, that come in. And of course what we have to see is where they are at the moment, how that fits in with the reality of music and the music profession, um, and how that matches up with the goals of the student.
1: Do you ever find yourself as educators Trying to unteach bad habits, or do you just try to refine things that students may have learned? What does that look like,
2: Aaron? Well, y- yes, of course. When we have when when we have students come in, I mean, there may be certain attitudes towards music making that might be unhelpful in terms of, let's say, um, attitudes towards health and health promotion that might lead to injury. Uh, we might see uh, certainly um, the development of technical skills that could be refined in a way or some aspects of technique being brought back so that you can create a better foundation on which you can then move forward yet again. So it it really depends on the individual student and the way that we largely across the music education sector address this is a lot of one-to-one teaching. So most of the teaching that we do is not classroom based it's not even two or three students together it's direct one professor, one student, working for several hours within a term to build new pieces and repertoire, to, to build up those technical skills and make sure that there is a, a firm solid physical foundation on which people can interact with their instruments or sing. Um, and also that they have some guidance as to you know, the sort of ways in which they can say something musically. So there, there are good habits that we see and there are bad habits of course.
1: of course. And does that mean as well, then, with a view to looking at best practice at the Royal College of Music, that you can manipulate some of these catalysts in order to optimize the students' learning and development?
2: I think we're constantly looking for ways to innovate in how we train our musicians. and, and that. That's absolutely essential in terms of basically trying to stay open to new possibilities for learning. Historically speaking, I, I, I'd say that you know some of the issues that come along with things around performers' health have not really been on the table because for discussion or for education. With regard to innovation in training, I'll give you an example, which is over the past 30 years, we've seen very direct, dedicated efforts to enhance the way that we support the health and well-being of our musicians. Thirty years ago, I think it's safe to say that there was almost no talk about physical problems, injury, pain, and there was certainly no discussion around performance anxiety and other aspects of mental health that can have an effect on performance what we have seen in that time is a lot of research that's been taking place to unpack and to provide a clearer picture of what the situation is like. So to what extent do mental and physical health problems exist within education, within the profession? So what are those problems? What are the possible causes and how can we then support our students better in both addressing those problems but also making sure that they can prevent any problems arising so that they can then continue to have a long and productive career. And so what we've tried to do here in our research is not only to understand the the basic picture of what the situation is, but to integrate into the curriculum some teaching and support around how to help musicians not only survive their music making, but to but to do it in a way that will set them up with a good foundation for... Um, prolonged productivity and success.
1: It sounds like you're part of a wider paradigm shift when it comes to the stigma perhaps around the mental aspects and around performance. I imagine your students are more aware now of the services available to them as well.
2: What we have seen uh, over that over the past couple of decades, um, not just here at the Royal College of Music but across, I think, international conservatoires, is that um, Students are willing to engage more directly with aspects of mental health support. Uh, and we, to the extent to which they uh, are requesting you know, services that we may not have offered, but we, they feel that we need to. And we're trying to respond to that in a proactive way as well. So we, we try to set in place um, opportunities for them that will help support them in the way that they would like to be supported, but also in ways that's underpinned by our knowledge through research.
1: So Aaron, I'd like to talk about the Performance Simulator here at the Royal College of Music. I mean, what role has it played in furthering your understanding of the aspects that go into performance? I mean, I suppose firstly it would be best if you could explain what the simulator is and why its introduction is so important.
2: Well we want to make sure that our students do get performance opportunities and in order to do that we have within our own college several performance spaces and we put, uh, we put on per year several hundred concerts and recitals. So we want people to feel what it's like to walk out in front of an audience, to have the spotlight on them, but we don't want that to be a situation necessarily where they see that as some sort of final product but because they're in their training they can they can look at this as an opportunity to learn and to get better for the next performance and to keep performing again. And in theory that's a really nice idea, we do that, but you know there are a couple of problems to this arrangement that we have discovered And and the first is that with regard to performance spaces that we have, we have a lot but we also have far too many students to give them as much experience as we would like for them to have. So, we cannot guarantee that all of our students will get onto our concert hall platform for a solo recital every year. We have 800 students, we have one concert hall, and we have many other halls around, but we want to, um, you know, the availability of space is tight, and it's tight everywhere. And moreover, we try to get them onto stages, other stages in London to give them that experience. So that first problem is just the frequency of exposure to performance. Then the second problem is that we want people not to fixate so much on how their audiences are evaluating them, but to give them the freedom to go into a space to experiment and to practice performing without the risk of negative public appraisal. And so considering those two problems, we... We're looking around to see, well, how do performers in other fields address this? And some fields do this quite well. And, you know, we we have a partnership with uh, Imperial College next door to us. And at Imperial College, they have the um, Center for Engagement and Simulation Science, where they are looking at training surgeons to practice their surgical skills and to be good surgeons before they hit the uh, operating theater for real. Um, Now one way in which they do that is to to build quite elaborate surgical simulation suites um, that are very expensive both to build and to run. But we also have colleagues there who uh, use a technique called distributed simulation where it's based really on low-cost portable facilities that draw the individual performer into the mind of performance by giving them certain cues, environmental cues and and procedural cues that that allow them to think in that performance mode. So for instance, um, surgical students will go through a process of gowning up and scrubbing up before they go into a simulation. And the simulation itself might be pared down or not as elaborate as in the real simulation suite, Um, but because they've been through the same procedure, as they would in a normal operation, or in a normal simulation, and then the task itself is very, very elaborate at the, at the focus of their attention, then they're able to practice the, the skills that they need to practice for those particular procedures, those operations that they target. So I thought, well, this notion of distributed simulation is appealing because it's low cost, and it's portable, and we don't have a lot of money at the Royal College of Music, and nor do we have a lot of space, uh, and so What we've done is to use the same principle to generate what we've called a performance simulator. And what that means is that when students sign up to use it, they are shown to a green room, which in, in any sort of concert hall would be the space where the artist is able to unpack, get dressed, warm up, and get ready to perform. And when they're in the green room, there's a backstage manager who will come and maybe... Give them a thirty-minute stage call or fifteen-minute or five-minute, and then they'll take them to the backstage area. So we we replicate that whole procedure. We have a a, a green room. We have a backstage manager who greets the uh, the performers and gets them and gives them the the, the stage call at various moments. Um, and otherwise, the performers are just getting ready to perform. And then we take them to the backstage area. And in that backstage area, they can. Um, They have to wait until they're given the signal to walk out on stage. And they can overhear the murmur of the audience. This is all being moderated by the backstage manager, who goes through a protocol of interacting with the so-called front of house to make sure that they're ready for them to take the stage. And when the backstage manager confirms that the front of house is ready, the door opens, they're given, given a signal to walk through, and they walk out into a space where the spotlights hit them, an audience is applauding for them, and it's an otherwise darkened environment that is reproducing the situation of an actual performance. Now what they actually see out there is an, a virtual interactive audience that does respond and cough and clap and sneeze and, and their phones go off, and they do all the sort of things that, they, that happen in real life. It's just that from backstage we control the audience Depending on what we, how difficult we want to make the performance, or what we're trying to rehearse, it's a virtual performance environment that has some other real-life uh, simulated bits to it as well. And so we have uh, video cameras situated around the space, pointed at the performer. They can review those videos uh, later with their teacher or with uh, with colleagues or or just by themselves. And we in that space we have the opportunity for people to practice their performance and the audience will react to them just as they would in a real live performance space. So that's one simulation that we have up and running. Um, A more difficult simulation is is one of an audition. So we have the same basic protocol that you would have uh, that I've just described. But instead of walking out in front of a small audience that applauds for you, you walk out in front of a panel of three judges. And those judges give you a signal. They tell you that you can start your audition when you're ready. And uh, we can set the judges to react to you in three different modes. So they can like what you're doing, they can uh, be indifferent towards what you're doing, or they can be downright hostile and not like what you're doing. and, that, and taking people through that process of performing and giving that chance to get some immediate feedback. What we're trying to do here is not just make life difficult for our musicians, but give them a chance to see what it's like when things are going well, when it's not going well. Also to help them develop uh, strategies for dealing with situations that aren't going well uh, and reframing those, those moments. And then when students are finished performing, I, I mentioned that they have access to videos, but we also provide some coaching where we um, can work with students to work on very, uh, very direct points of enhancing their performance, and that might include, you know, presentational issues around taking command of the stage or looking as though they're enjoying the performance, or um, it might include things that have to do more with. Um, the sort of um, musical or technical nature of the performance if we get one of the, one of the instrumental teachers in to work very directly with, with our students there. So we provide a number of, we provide one or, or, or a couple of scenarios in which people can practice those performance skills and then we work with them to decide how to support them best.
1: So when you're going through one of those um, simulations, Is the person manipulating it, acting in real time, depending on what the student may be doing, how they may be behaving?
2: Yeah, so backstage we can control everything that's happening on stage by way of the audience. And if we're doing a research study, then we will have very definite protocols in place as to what's going to happen at what point. And that's very useful for research. But most of our students come to use the simulator, the performance simulator. Uh, to work on very specific skills so they may have an audition with an orchestra coming up and they want to practice for that audition or they may have a, 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 a recital a public recital coming up and they want to practice that recital so we will work with them to decide how to change the audience through this time and uh, by setting this out very deliberately we then try to help them in that Systematic way, we we have opened the possibility for uh, more spontaneous interaction, of course, because we want people to be responsive to to things that happen, Uh, phones going off in the middle of their in their their performances, which is unusual for classical music, Um, and but it does happen. And you have to be able to, to take that and be able to respond to it. And so we may throw in some surprises here and there. But we work with the students to see you know what they want to improve and how we can best introduce challenges to, to test them at that. We also have some situations where students will directly want to have some coaching with regard to their anxiety levels on stage. Or maybe they want particular coaching in terms of how they present themselves and better better sort of stage presence, and so we will get uh, the right sort of teacher in to work with them, to give them that feedback.
1: And you encourage self-reflection at the same time in your students?
2: Yeah, what, what we do see, I mean, what we're really trying to encourage is this notion of learning in the spotlight. So we want people not just to come and perform, but they need to reflect on what they did. And they need to be able to do that in situations that that aren't entirely charged by the emotions and the energy of the event itself. So, you know, it, it's good to be able to take some steps back, look at that video performance, and say, well, okay, rather than naturally jumping to all the things that I did wrong, what did I do right? And maybe reframing that performance in a way to say, okay, I'll take the good bits from this performance, I'm going to accentuate that and move on to the next performance. And how has
1: the center's work enabled you to take those learnings? From what you've witnessed with the uh, simulation programs and apply them to performance, whether it's in the practice rehearsal or even on stage, uh, when are students' stress levels at the greatest? Or I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be different in each and every case.
2: Yes, yeah, so we have a lot of variation across our students in terms of what they're going through at different points in the year. We have A lot of our students are out doing professional performances already, very active professional careers, and some have crunch points where they have lots of auditions coming up because they want jobs uh, when they when they leave us or maybe they have their end of year recitals where they'll have uh, people they want to impress in the audience and what we do is make available to simulator throughout the, the year so students can book into this space uh, whenever they like we don't put any restrictions on how much time they spend in fact we don't put any restrictions in terms of how many times they use the space and it's in some cases uh, students will use it five, six, seven, maybe even ten times leading up to one particular recital and um, to date we've been able to manage this within the resource that we have within the centre uh, and we, we just make the space available um, as much as we possibly can. We do make sure that every first year student when they come to us, they get an induction in the performance simulator, they know that the facility is there, they get to, to use it in their first year, and that then paves the way for them using it later. Of course, you know, with, uh, with simulation or any other sort of novel training technique, I mean, there are some people who don't want to use it, who aren't interested, who may not see the, that they benefit as much as others. So we make the space available, and um, it's not a requirement, but it's it's an opportunity that they can use should they decide to do it.
1: And how common are such simulators in the conservatoires of the world?
2: Well, we have, I believe, the only simulator of its type. So, it's not very common. They're quite rare, in fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: what are some of the ways Aaron you've worked with students and musicians to alleviate the effects of performance anxiety then?
2: Well here um, we with using for instance our performance simulator we um, we can have students sign up to use it who will request uh, direct one to one coaching with perhaps one of, our, um, one of our psychologists on staff who might work in a direct way to address certain anxieties about performance. So we may then introduce them into performance situations that are really rather um, straightforward without much to do and then work with them slowly to increase the level of pressure that we we have around the performance and the, the level of challenges that we're presenting during the performance. Uh, we do that we also though in the past have um, and currently introduced students to a wide range of um, mental or psychological skills to in directly in the curriculum uh, of, our, of our students so that they can get access to things like um, visualization techniques um, and, uh, and, and other imagery skills, relaxation techniques, so things that uh, that you might find in, in areas of sport that are unfortunately uh, I can say only new to music So we try to, where possible, draw as much as we can from the best practice that we see in other fields and take it in for our students.
1: And what about when it comes to post-performance? You've already touched upon this afternoon the idea of bringing students down from a heightened state of being. Uh, What are some of the ways you can help do that then, post-performance?
2: I think for a lot of musicians there is a tendency to want to obsess on mistakes or errors and I think we have to just shift our thinking away from that so that we can look at get students and musicians to think about you know, what what went right, what was really good in that and that requires developing some strategies towards reflection and review and through say for instance our performance simulator we will have colleagues who will work with students to help take them through this process. In some cases directly after a performance, but also in other cases in follow-up sessions that happen in the days or maybe even the weeks afterwards. And if you look within classical music it's a, uh, and, and the performance of Western art music, it tends to be based on a lot on precision and accuracy. We have recordings now and people measure themselves up against note-perfect recordings. If you look at recordings from many decades ago, um, you know, you might criticize them for being, you know, riddled with errors and so on. And, and today, of course, I mean, if you want to carve out a niche within if you want to carve out a um a career in music, I mean it, it it seems that a level of precision, a high level of precision is is really needed in order to win those recording contracts to get good reviews in the papers and so on. But you know, this is also uh, an area where people can start to obsess about accuracy at the expense of taking some artistic risks or at the, the expense of trying to say something interesting artistically. So we just try to make sure in some of the reflection on performance that we give people that broader picture so that they don't immediately allow themselves to be drawn into the note-per-note note evaluation of everything that went wrong and to think more around, you know, what are those broad patterns of things that went absolutely right.
1: So as in sports performance, excellence in music can be quite a subjective
2: matter. Exactly. I mean, you, um, you know, what makes a great performance of the well-tempered clavier? Well, your decision is a, a, the best performance out there on, on, on record is, is, is going to be probably quite different from mine and it may just depend on which records we bought first or who, which yeah. performer we heard playing it last. Uh, and it's not the case that, you know, um, playing Chopin the fastest will make give you the automatic win at a competition. <laughs> so, so there is a high degree of subjectivity, and I think, you know, within the arts, we can firmly embrace that. We can work with that to our advantage. We can rest assured that, you know, that allows us the freedom to have something new to say rather than having to say it like that person or faster than that person or, or so on. So essentially
1: musicians need the confidence of their convictions to go up with their talent of course.
2: Yes and, and you know, there's always a balance between um, having convictions about how to perform certain repertoire and mapping that on to what the audiences are expecting and there are examples of great performers uh, glenn gould the canadian pianist for instance is a great example where he actively wanted to work against audience expectations in order to get them to hear some of what he called these staid pieces again uh, fresh but you know there's not a lot of performers who are able to pull that off and it's that balance is a, is a, is a tough one to to look at and so this is where you know, public demand, artistic vision, and ability to do what you want to do technically come together to make um, really great opportunities for musicians, but it also makes it hard in terms of carving out a distinctive profile for yourself when there's so much competition out there. And
1: one final area, Aaron, I'd like to touch upon this afternoon is the Healthy Conservatoires Network. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, how it came into being.
2: So just a few years ago, all the conservatoires in the UK held uh, some town hall meetings to discuss areas where we could collaborate to help support our students better. And one of the areas that we identified is supporting students in terms of their physical and mental health. We know across the performing arts medicine literature that there are quite a lot of problems in terms of the experience of performance related pain and injury. We know that there's a lot of performance anxiety out there and some other worrying elements of mental health. Um, we know that as educators, we have a duty of care to make sure that we set up our students with the sort of skills that they need to not only respond to injury and mental ill health when it comes, but to prevent those problems. And so we set out, at that time, to run a a large national research project called Musical Impact, where we did a lot of research to understand the current picture of musicians' health in Britain and how that affected their performance. And arising from our research results, we have decided that we needed to form a national, in fact, an international network of music training organisations and music employee, em, employers that meets regularly to look at good practice and to share that good practice across the sector. And so Healthy conservatoires focuses on ways in which we can support and promote the health of our students and our staff across music education and into the profession as well. We meet regularly, we see good practice where it's happening, we try to share how to implement that and the, the, um, the, both the opportunities and the challenges to, to trying to get people to engage with health in a, in a constructive way. And um, we try to then take those meetings and what we glean from those meetings back into our home institutions to uh, enact change, so that we can then, on a local basis, enhance the training that we offer. Right. So, what are
1: some of the topics that will be discussed? What are some of the questions that may be posed and indeed answered?
2: We address standardized standard topics that you see across the field, such as approaches to addressing performance anxiety. So, you know, here at the Royal College of Music, we do a lot with our performance simulator and mental skills training, in order to give students new sort of skills and tools to address issues with anxiety but that may not be the case and it certainly isn't the case that that same degree of practice and facility is offered at other conservatoires. so we come in with examples of that practice and we discuss with our partners how they can then take some of that information back into what they do we look at um, topics as well about how to promote information on health. So you know we're dealing largely with otherwise healthy and thriving young people who may want to drink or smoke or have uh, uh, all sorts of different types of food and may not think about the implications of their behaviors on their health and more specifically on how they perform. And so how to engage young people with issues of health and well-being is another topic that we talk, talk about. And we also talk about how best when we identify problems and and help problems among our students, how we can then make sure that they get the right level of support so that we can both help them and for them to help themselves to tackle those issues. So what are the support services that we need within our organizations to help uh, enhance the training?
1: So I imagine you found it an
2: invaluable resource. It's been really eye-opening to see the approaches that people take in different conservatoires, in different orchestras around uh, the UK and around the world. we, you know, At the Royal College of Music we do quite a lot to promote the health of our students, but we also see excellent practice at other places. And we want to learn from that, and we, we want to learn how they implement it, how they fund it, the extent to which they get it approved and, and embedded within the core values of their institutions. And so this is a very, it's a, it's a very dynamic and interesting way, I think, to engage with these issues and to, to see how people are tackling some of the same core problems that we, that we have but filtered through the local demands that each of us face when it comes back to working with our set of students and our musicians. And whose idea
1: was it? Or was it one person's idea or one institution's idea?
2: So the Healthy Conservatoires, uh, it was an initiative that grew out of this this project, Musical Impact. Uh, I was the principal investigator for that project. Uh, I currently chair Healthy Conservatoires, but we have a steering committee that's drawn from national partners. And so we meet on a regular basis to steer the 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 initiative forward and to set certain topics uh, and to set the agenda really fantastic
1: Aaron thank you very much for your time this afternoon
2: thank you